Hi, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on today's episode, we have a very special guest, Jill Soloway, creator of the award-winning shows Transparent and I Love Dick, and author of the new book, She Wants It, Desire, Power, and Toppling the Patriarchy. If you have not yet seen Transparent and I Love Dick on Amazon Video, I highly recommend you check them out. These shows are transformative narratives about family, gender, sexuality, longing, desire, freedom, and they also offer some of the best sex scenes I have ever seen captured on film, and Jill and I talk about that a little later in the interview. Before we get started, I want to remind you to come on over to pleasuremechanics.com for our full podcast archive. And while you are there, sign up for our free online course, The Erotic Essentials, so we can get you started creating the sex life you most desire on your own terms. Go to pleasuremechanics.com free. And to support this show, please come over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics, and join our inner circle for as little as a dollar a month, support the show, and be in direct community with us and other listeners of Speaking of Sex. All right, before we launch into the interview, a few quick notes about the interview. First, Jill was gracious enough to join us for this interview via Skype on the set of Transparent Season 5 and stepped away from rehearsals just for this conversation. And we had a few little technical snafus where their computer kept giving notification sounds and interrupting the flow of the interview. So there's a little bit of choppy editing and you hear that notification bing a couple times. Um, So I apologize for that, but we laughed through it and got through it and were able to settle into our conversation eventually. Um, So you'll notice that in the beginning. I also wanted just to give you some background about Transparent, because Jill mentions that this show was inspired by Jill's own experience of their parent coming out as transgender when Jill was already an adult. And after Jill Soloway's parent came out as transgender, Jill wrote and directed a pilot of Transparent for Amazon, and it went on to become a worldwide phenomenon and really one of the forces that shaped the cultural conversation about transgender people over the past few years. So Jill mentions at some point in the interview, um, their parent coming out as transgender, which inspired Transparent. And then working on the show, Jill had their own gender transformation and now walks in the world as a non-binary person, exploring their own authentic gender expression free from the binary of male and female. So we talk a little bit about that. And we also talk about toppling the patriarchy. And I want to be very clear that patriarchy is not a word for men. 
And when we talk about toppling the patriarchy or dismantling the patriarchy, this is not declaring war on men. So I cannot do this justice in a little intro to an interview, but I want to quickly say patriarchy refers to a system of power that divides humans into the gender binary, men and women, and then assigns privilege and power to men to control and dominate women's lives. And what is important to know is that patriarchy harms us all. As a system of domination and coercion, it harms everyone it touches, including men. It restricts our freedoms, it creates conflict and violence, and perhaps even war, some argue. And dismantling the patriarchy is paving the path for a more equitable and just and beautiful and loving world for all of us. I want to quickly read a quote from feminist thinker Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks says, Visionary feminism is a wise and loving politics. It is rooted in the love of male and female being, refusing to privilege one over the other. The soul of feminist politics is in the commitment to ending patriarchal domination of women and men, girls and boys. Love cannot exist in any relationship that is based on domination and coercion. Males cannot love themselves in patriarchal culture if their very self-definition relies on submission to patriarchal rules. When men embrace feminist thinking and practice, which emphasizes the value of mutual growth and self-actualization in all relationships, their emotional well-being will be enhanced. A genuine feminist politics always brings us from bondage to freedom, from lovelessness to loving. All right, so thank you to Bell Hooks for those wise words. So here we go. Here is my interview with creator Jill Soloway. Jill Soloway, welcome to Speaking of Sex. Oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled. Hmm. Your work has been a major inspiration for me, so I'm very humbled and happy. (laughs) Thank you. So I want to offer a lightning round recap of your career for those who don't know that they already know and love your work. So you were a TV writer on shows like Six Feet Under, Grey's Anatomy, and many others. You made a well-loved independent movie called Afternoon Delight, and then created a show called Transparent, which then went on to become a super successful award-winning show, and also brought a transgender narrative into millions of homes around the world. You also wrote and produced I Love Dick, another brilliant show that grapples with sexuality and gender. And as part of Amazon, your shows reach an audience of 230 countries around the world. So how do you think about this relationship between producing media and changing culture? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, I think um, I've always been really just sort of in this belief that I have to change the world and I have to hurry. (laughs) I grew up in a neighborhood in Chicago called South Commons where my parents were really involved in the civil rights movement. And there's this scene in I Love Dick where one where uh, one of the characters is helping her mom lick stamps and put them on envelopes and mm-hmm. get the word out. I think in I Love Dick we have her 
watching all the feminists attempting to get Geraldine Ferraro elected. Mm -hmm. And that was what my childhood was like, was like, it's the civil rights movement, we're in a movement, we're licking, we're licking stamps, we're stuffing envelopes, we're going to change the world. And so from maybe the age of, you know, five to 11, that was how I watched my mom get up in the morning every day. And that was what I believed was the engine that keeps us going was that, you know, there's a movement going on, and we're in it. Mm -hmm. So I think I probably forgot about that when I was in my teens and just went around, you know, went back to life, which is like being a teenager, high school, college, social life, trying to, um, you know, whatever it is that teenagers do, be popular. <laughs> and I think then I really started to have a lot of my gender awakenings around what it meant to be um, a girl, female, femme, what. Uh, my responsibility was to men and boys around, you know, heterosexuality, compulsory heterosexuality, whatever, whatever that is. And I think then in my 20s, I started to see how I could reclaim um, my um, movement wanting self, the part of me that was like, I have to be trying to change the world and all of my awareness around gender and feminism. And so it's always been a really personal thing for me. I don't really think about um, the 230 countries, I think I'm in a really interesting position. You know, I thought this even before my parent came out, I'm in a really interesting position where I have a lot of ideas about gender and I get to make art and I'm going to keep churning that inner mechanism, that inner engine to keep making things. And I, I'm so lucky when people see them and that's really always where I am. I'm trying to vibrate in that internal place where I'm solving my own emotional, um, questions by art making. And then when you extrapolate out to the big world and see, oh, my God, Amazon is, you know, being seen in 230 countries, people in 230 countries are seeing transparent or are seeing I love Dick. Um, that's like more of this kind of just overwhelming. Oh, my God, I feel so lucky and I have so much responsibility and I feel so thrilled that that's happening. But that's not really ever there in my day to day. You know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Hmm. You've said that media has a potential to be an empathy engine. What do you mean by that? Well, that's actually something Roger Ebert said. He said, film is an empathy machine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the director is using the camera to offer the audience um, two hours, if it's a movie, to sit in the actual seat, sit where the pants of the protagonist. So every shot is meant to um, help us go, yay, protagonist, go. Um, or no, protagonist, don't go. And so when you're sitting in the seat of the person who is the lead, you are rooting for them. It's all, you know, story is an attempt to create rootability around a main character. A simple story structure, hero's journey is I'm the lead and here's my challenges. And, you know, I'm, I'm going on this fight. Come with me and root for me. If that person is cis, if that person is white, if that person is male, then we're automatically, you know, putting a bunch of money in the, in the emotional bank of their persona. And then when you go, well, what if this person was a woman? What if this person was a, was a person of color? What if this person was trans? Um, every single episode, every single movie that would have this, this protagonist who is, you know, capital O other would offer audiences the opportunity to now root for somebody who isn't necessarily a, you know, the typical hero and isn't necessarily them, you know, white or cis, for example. Mm-hmm. And 
What I notice and love about your work is you don't go to classic binaries of good guy, bad guy, and the archetypes, even when dealing with things like child sexual abuse, you really insist on every character having complexity, and all of our elements within us are expressed. Is this part of the queer philosophy you bring to film? Is this part of your own human complexity? Why do you insist constantly on emotional complexity? Um, I, see, I, I see things in the shape of a circle. Mm. And I felt you know, that I really learned that on Six Feet Under when Alan Ball was leading. He was doing something that um, one of the other producers, Alan Poole, called leading from behind. You know, I used to call the way that Alan Ball led leading from the feminine. And, you know, I think I use the word feminine to talk about the past. I don't really want to use it to talk about the future because I think thinking of the feminine as the ultimate space holding is, you know, essentialist and it's binary. And I actually, you know, think that there's a, a balance that's going to lead us into this non-binary future. But I do think in terms of a circle and a shape that is, um, Judy Chicago called it circle-based pedagogy, where there is a truth in the center and that we gather in a circle around a particular truth and we allow the truth to be felt. So I saw Alan Ball doing that scene to scene on Six Feet Under where in one scene we would feel like Brenda was the villain and then you get to the next scene and you feel like, you know what, actually Brenda's really a good person, she's just misguided. Yes. Okay. So Alan Ball with Alan Ball did that as a storytelling style where I could really feel that, you know what, this is not a story about a heroic fisher and a villain. And I could really feel that this was the beginning of my understanding of what I then call the heroine's journey, which is something, you know, very different from the hero's journey, the Campbellian, you know, single man myth making story, which I think provides us with the idea of the male genius and the idea of the male hero. And, you know, that's what we find when we're trying to figure out what's happening in this moment when we're trying to take down patriarchy. We find, you know, on the other side of patriarchy, uh, male heroism, capitalism, the myth of the male genius, exceptionalism, you know, these things that have been driving cis, oh God, it's still happening. What was I talking about? Mm. Can't remember. Circle based. Oh, capitalism. Okay, so the, <laughs> it all goes back to capitalism. <laughs> it does, unfortunately, the idea that there isn't a specific hero and a specific villain—it's um, always seemed to me a revolutionary way to tell stories because it asks the audience to keep moving and keep changing, and in some ways become the protagonist. Mm-hmm and to embody the villain in moments and recognize all of these parts of ourselves within your characters. Um, Watching your shows, it's apparent how these queer perspectives show up in the art itself. What is less visible is how your principles influence how you work and how you lead. Can you talk a little bit about what steps you're taking to do things differently on set? Um, Yeah, well, we always try to start the day with getting in a circle and heart connecting and holding space for vulnerability and knowing that the process is always elevated over the product. So I think on most shows and really in a lot of businesses, there's a feeling underneath that, you know, it better be fast, it better be cheap, it better be right. Hmm. 
And so whether you're on a TV show or a movie or it could be anywhere, uh, there's this feeling when the quote unquote boss comes in, the idea of that person as a man, again, I don't want to be like essentialist, but let's say that like the boss comes in or two or three bosses, you know, the guys from finance or the people who are in charge and they'll stand there with their arms folded and, and assess, are we getting it right? Is it happening fast enough? Is it cheap enough? Hmm. And we kind of just unhook all that by saying, um, everybody else thinks they're running out of time, they're running out of money, they're running out of light, unless we, we remind ourselves over and over again, we have plenty of time, we have, we have plenty of money, and we're channeling the light. Hmm. So we are just amazed that we get to spend our day making art um, in gratitude that we're playing, that we're playing, like the idea of the play as play, hmm. pretending to be people, we're walking around on sets that we made. It's really just ultimate play. So we are in ultimate gratitude and we're always holding space around the sense of possibility and gratitude. And just that little switch in the physics of what are we doing here at work? Um, most people are like, what are we doing here at work? We're trying to make a profit and we're trying to do it fast so we don't get in trouble. Hmm taking that psychology out and going, no, we're playing, we're in gratitude, we can't believe that we get to have this honor, creates a kind of new, I think, um, ecosystem to be in. And it just, it all feels like a gift. I love that. One of the shifts we invite people to take in their sexuality is to move from performance to play. Mm. So that makes so much sense to me. I want to talk about your sex scenes. Transparent and I Love Dick offer some of the most vulnerable, relatable, honest sex scenes I've ever seen captured. How do you think about the narrative power of a sex scene and what it makes possible for the viewers? Thank you so much for saying that. That means so much for me. Mm -hmm. um, I always feel that when we're shooting them, I think, God, what would it have been like for me to have seen this sex scene in my 20s? Right. What would it be like to grow up on this television instead of Love Boat or Fantasy Island or Beauty Pageants? You know, watching, for example, there's a scene where Allie and Sid are, um, they have a strap on and, you know, I think Allie's wearing the strap on over her boxers and Sid goes, put that thing away. I don't want to see that during the you know light of day. And Allie's going, you know, Allie's attempting to see, you know, what it feels like for her to walk around with her new partner wearing a dick. And they're just being totally shameless about it. In fact, Sid is actually sharing her shame. She's like, ooh, don't do that. And Allie's going like, oh, come on, it's fun. And, you know, for me, that is just like such a revolutionary scene to have on television casually, you know, hanging out there between other scenes. Mm -hmm. casually being shown to 230 countries. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it just feels like, yeah, we're passing these kinds of message in a bottle, you know, messages in a bottle to people and feminists and queer people and women who are, again, like stuck in that compulsory heterosexuality, stuck in that idea of normal, you know, um, wait a minute, you know, here's, here's a way of it being playful. And then the other thing that's like, been a huge realization to me as I've been thinking so much about consent is that the way that we have all watched television and movies in the past and a total trope about sex, which is two eyes meet across the room, they come together, wow, maybe even they start kick kissing, 
cut to they're in bed going at it wildly cut to they're sitting next to each other and the sheets are pulled up over their chat you know the mm-hmm. sheets are like covering their body and they're just decompressing and having their cigarette or whatever so this like little sequence right mm-hmm. eyes meet maybe first kiss pop to we're going at it pop to simultaneous post- orgasm <laughs> simultaneous <laughs> orgasm post sex yeah. <laughs> what that actually is doing is editing out female consent mm-hmm. we were raised watching sex scenes where the moment where the women consent is not filmed or included and what a disaster for women This is because it was mostly men making television and movies, mostly men with a camera, mostly men writing. And so let's take A Star is Born, for example. Have you seen A Star is Born? Not the new one. Okay, you need to see it because there's all of these moments that are played as romantic. Mm. There are a lot of consent breaches. You know, their names are, I think, Jackson and Allie. You know, he keeps touching her without permission. He keeps pushing her to do things she doesn't want to do. And, you know, there are moments where you see her almost contemplate, but she's, she's pretty moved by his insistence. And I don't blame men for writing these narratives where women are being moved by their charm, that women are being moved by male desire, that women are being moved by men's admiration for them it's not men's fault that these are their stories i get that these are the stories they want to tell but they are 100 percent erasing female desire female protagonism female you know women leading women choosing i think what's happening is that in patriarchy uh men really like the idea that they are both uh the desirer so they desire and they also own her sexual response. So they're waiting for a woman to say, I want it until they've caused it. They want to feel like they're the ones who brought her desire into the room. That's why women can't enter the room with their desire. That's why women who actually wanted some part of a sexual experience aren't trusted when it comes to consent and the law. The only women who are protected with consent and the law are women who did not have any desire until the man handed it to them. I actually think the reckoning is a great moment for men because we're saying, guys, you don't have to hold your desire and ours. All you have to do is pay attention to women's desire. They're not both yours. They're not both yours. You bring your desire, let your partner have her own. And so in I Love Dick, we have this couple who's going through a dry spell, they're alienated, they have kind of a very fumbly, awkward scene where he tries to initiate sex and in a very awkward way. And then her desire is stoked outside of the relationship and rises within her as this creative force that then drives the rest of the series. So she is the agent of that desire. Um, how do you work with these actors to create such raw scenes? Because it doesn't feel like a performance. It feels like something is being channeled. Are these scripted? Is it premeditated? Are you going for a specific emotion? Yeah, it's the same thing as that circle. So um, again, like a lot of uh, male writers or male directors or typical, you know, existing in patriarchy writers and directors will have a script that is golden. 
a director who was attempting to get the script right as mm -hmm. per their vision, as instructed by the producers who are protecting the money. So you're in a triangle of people who are attempting to do something right for most TV and movies. And we have, uh, we bring some of our like Chicago style improv theater, yes and uh, vibe to the set. Hmm. And so it sometimes it feels a little bit more like a documentary or street theater where the actors are channeling the characters. They're being the characters. We use the script to get us in the room. We use the script to kind of mark out the beat changes, the script to let us know what the scene is about. Hmm. But we really begin when we start rolling. Hmm. We begin something anew when we start rolling where we're giving birth to a community of possibility where now we are all feeling this scene for the first time and operating based on what is happening in real time, what we're all feeling. Um, and that's, I think, you know, the magic and the bubbles that you get where you're like, this feels so real. You know, it does have all of that, that risk and realness in it when we're filming it. Hmm. And it gives me goosebumps every time. <laughs> That's I, so cool. I use this interview as an excuse to rewatch all of the shows this weekend. And I was just amazed at the range of sexual experience you portray within a few short seasons. So thank you, because the okay. words that come to me are possibility and permission. Mm, that's so awesome. That makes me so happy. Hmm. So let's talk about your new book. It's about to launch. It's called She Wants It, Desire, Power, and Toppling the Patriarchy. So why this book and why now? Well, I've been working on the book for about four years, and it's definitely had a few different names. Mm. At one point, it was called Will You Still Love Me If? Mm. And at one point, it was called Topple the Patriarchy. And after it was called She Wants It, and then I started to identify as non-binary, I thought, do I need to call it They Want It? Or we want it, or she wanted it. Um, the reason I kept with the title She Wants It is because when I was in my 20s, I wrote a documentary proposal about um, consent and gender, and it was called She Wants It. God knows why, before my parent even came out as trans, and just, I think, as I was beginning to understand, you know, what the feminist movement could do, it was like this. there was this group of women in Chicago called Sister Spit, we were like obsessed with Annie Sprinkle. We were really starting to understand it was like the sort of second wave feminism where there was, you know, the sex positive feminism was this really new thing. You know, when I went to college, it was 100% like, let's learn about fem feminism. Feminism is anti-porn, end of story. Mm -hmm. And just after college, it, you know, the, the, you know, Susie Bright and Annie Sprinkle and all the sex positive feminists sort of came into my worldview. And I started to really understand how, um, women are held accountable and blamed for having any desire in our society. So I wrote this documentary proposal called She Wants It, which was about consent, and tried a few stabs at getting it made and getting it funded and then put it away and moved on. I think moved on to this play version of the Brady Bunch that my sister and I were working on. So um, recently over the past year, I was looking through my old stuff and I found that proposal and I was like, I can't believe I've been haranguing on mm. about the same shit for almost 30 years. And she wants it just felt like the right title to me. It felt like it's really about something in particular, which is 
if there are two men and they're looking at a woman and they're and they're doing that thing where they're talking shit about her, where they're slut shaming her, where they're making an excuse, you know, for assault, like they might say she wants it or she wanted it. Yeah. And that's like an excuse, you know, t- two construction workers watching a hot girl walk down the street like, oh, yeah, check her out. She wants it. Clearly she wants it. It's an ins- it's an insult. And then if you're going to be a director, if you're going to be an artist, if you're going to be a writer, if you're going to be a thought leader, if you're going to be a politician, you have to want things. You have to want and want and want and want. You have to want that set. You have to want this actor. You have to want that backdrop. Hmm. You have to want this lens. You have to want this view. You have to want this helicopter shot. You have to just re-want over and over and over again. My big realization is that wanting for women is very different than wanting for men. A man who wants goes towards something. And dare I say, gender essentialism, the phallus or the dick goes in. For women, wanting something, and if we're going to use gender essentialism and vaginas, which many women have, wanting something means come in. Wanting something means allowing. And allowing is really, really dangerous in patriarchy. Huge. Huge. So simple, but so huge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I look back and I go, I was socialized female. I was raised female. You know, I was talking to my sister about this yesterday, and she was talking about little girls' underwear. She was visiting her friend who has a three-year-old daughter, and her three-year-old daughter is, you know, wearing underwear from Target, and it's cut like bikini underwear. And her friend was like, I'm not buying her girl's underwear anymore and getting her little boy's underwear because your little boy's underwear goes to the middle of your thigh. You know, little boys can wear boxer briefs. There's no such thing for little girls. We're already, as children, if you're the word girl, you're being groomed to say, I like having my body looked at. I want to show off my body with even the cut of clothes that you put on little girls. I like showing off my body. Is this weird hypnotic suggestion that we get from the second we start walking and being dressed? And boys don't have that. Boys and men don't have that. It's, you know, people are just like, oh, you should ask girls about what she wants to, uh, what she wants to be instead of how she's looking. Like, yes, duh, and I was ruined by that. I was absolutely ruined by thinking about whether or not I was cute for the first two decades of my life. Hmm. Ruined in terms of my ability to desire and consent. Because all that mattered was male desire and being really, really careful around not setting off or setting off too much of their desire for me. And what are you learning about desire now living as a non-binary person? Um, Well, it's just a whole other world, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the first step was um, dating women and suddenly realizing how much kind of unspoken stuff I was doing around men and around masculinity, kind of frothing up this idea of what a man is by simply shaping my whole personality, the way, I, the way I sat, the way I talked, the way I didn't express my thoughts, the way I saved my thoughts for only my female best friends, the way I really performed something that involved likability, uh, 
within my heterosexuality. So dating women, you know, the first big thing was like, wow, they, 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 they say things to me when I'm talking, like, say more about that. <laughs> At the first time a woman said to me, say more. I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Say more? You know, I'm so, I was so used to my whole life, guys going, boy, you think a lot. Mm-hmm. You, do we have to, do we really have to talk right now? Let's not talk about this. Um, so just, that was huge. Dating women going, oh, my mind is part of this. Your mind is thought of this, is part of this. Our minds together. We want to go in and in and into each other's minds. That was a big revelation. Um, I started off the first year or so of being queer, still thinking of myself as femme and dating butch women. Um, then started not thinking of myself as femme anymore, thinking of myself as butch, dating femme women, and now feeling very much like, you know, I, I want to be able to be free to be femme or butch in any moment, inside or outside, publicly or privately, mm-hmm. and never actually have to na- nail it down. Um, I find that like being butch in the outside world allows me a certain kind of privilege that I, I really enjoy, which is people aren't really looking at me. Um, I'm, a, I'm the assumed default looker. Um, people don't comment on my hair, my face, my clothes anywhere near as much. And they don't assume that I want to compliment about the way I look. And I really prefer to move through the world as an artist, not having people take in um, what I look like because I find that really annoying. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of consent, desire, all of it, I mean, that that's what's in the book. It's like uh, that's that's really what's all what's what's all there is a complete recognition of what parts of my um, performance were something that, you know, I thought I had to do yeah. as, as part of being straight, as part of being heterosexual. You know, this this thing, you know, I was putting on men, which is, you know, they want me to do this particular thing that this is what femininity is. This is what feminist is. And it's my job and I have to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of femme heterosexual women and there are a lot of femme people who actually love the feeling of, of being dressed up really femme. I'm not, I don't want to do any femme shaming. You know, I don't want to say like people shouldn't be femme. I, what I'm realizing is I wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't naturally femme. I was doing it because I thought I had to, and I didn't have to. Um, I think there are some people who are really femme, and there are some people who are really butch, and there are some people who are in between. And I think, you know, um, this idea in consent language and in movement language, which is believe femmes, and that, you know, femmes are much more vulnerable than everybody else, that's 100% true. You know, femmes are disbelieved. Femmes are disbelieved. Feminine people, mm-hmm. women. Trans women, if you are presenting femme, you are automatically saying, I am going to be believed less by the police, by the law, by my associates. And um, yeah, for me being able to get to a place of neutral where I don't necessarily feel like there's any outside that I'm performing it's just really helping me to get closer and closer to feeling like I'm doing what I want to be doing in any given moment and on any given day. So one of the things you want to be doing, one of your rallying cries is topple the patriarchy. This has inspired the name of your production company. It's in the title of your book. What does that mean to you right now in history? Well, it means, you know, that we have to really, um, 
be able to envision a complete and utter takedown of Trump and this global patriarchy and war. You know, there's a there's a um, manifesto in the book that I wrote with Eileen Miles. We call it the Thanksgiving Paris Manifesto, where we went all the way to asking ourselves, like, if we really did have the opportunity in our lifetime to end war on this planet, how would we do it? Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, when we have these conversations, when you say, like, you know, what does it mean to not have a hero or a villain? You know, you, you very quickly go hero's journey, patriarchy, capitalism, war. Yeah. You know, they're all quick, short line. So we're we're talking about this other thing, this other dream of peace and of love and tolerance and elevating the human over power and over winning. So it's capitalism, it's all of it, you know. The biggest dream we could have, you know. What do, what do I dream of? A woman in the White House, a trans woman in the White House, a queer White House, um, and the current administration in prison. And then after their sentences, we'll dismantle the prison system too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. I feel like art is so much how we will envision the future that we want to live into. Thank you for your art, your voice, your work. It has meant so much to so many of us. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And um, hope, hope people get to read the book and that it, and that it starts conversations and catalyzes. That's my dream for it. Mm-hmm. Jill Soloway, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, great. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Go make more beautiful art. Okay, I'll try. You are <laughs> loved. You so Cheers. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. All right. We hope you enjoyed that interview. I would love to hear your thoughts. Again, come over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics. P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics to be in direct communication with us. As this show grows, I am unable to keep up with the volume of email coming into my inbox. So if you want to be in direct communication with us, please step up and support the show and step into our inner circle of community where we can be in direct conversation about this and every episode of Speaking of Sex. We will be back with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex, and I promise we will make it something sexy and fun and light and joyful because we all need that as a counterpart to the big ideas and the work that needs to be done to create a new sex culture. So we'll bring it back to the genitals, back to sex, and find something really fun to talk about, I promise. All right, and thank you again for hanging in there with us through these big conversations. I hope they are useful to you and inspire you. Um, I really appreciate having this podcast to be able to have these conversations with people like Jill Soloway and Esther Perel and other people who are doing the big work of thinking and envisioning a new sex culture. What is the sex culture that we want to live into as a human species? I love that question and I appreciate all of you podcast listeners hanging in there with us and participating in these conversations. All right, I'm Chris from pleasuremechanics.com. 
wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers.